All right, welcome back to Eat Lunch and Board Game. I'm your host, Adam Collins. And with me today is author, publisher, former employee of Parker Brothers, all-around game buff, and the co-founder of Winning Moves Games, Phil Orbanes. How are you doing, Phil? I am fine, and I'm delighted to be here, Adam. Oh, man. So I've been working on trying to build my podcast up, and one of the things I said was to make a list of your dream guests. And uh, you were the first name I wrote down on there. And so when uh, you replied back that you'd be happy to be on my show, I was like, well, what's the next step of making my podcast great? So I'm really happy that you came on. Um, like I said, author. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. I Your books are fantastic, fun reads. I just finished reading uh, Tortured Cardboard. Oh, yeah, I had fun with that one. I, I bet you did. So that one kind of spans the history of board gaming or through the eyes of specific games. Right. And you wrote it with uh, the game Gnome. Yeah. So. <laughs> Who is real? Who is real, right? Yep. You had a picture in the book. Yeah. So for anybody who doesn't know who you are and what you do for the gaming community, uh, why don't you tell them? Well, um, first of all, I have been in this wonderful uh, profession, I like to tell people, since I was eight years old. In truth, I actually got into the business as I was graduating high school and founded my own little game company called Game Science, um, which helped me to pay my college education, got me into the game industry in New York City when I sold it to a New York-based toy firm. And eventually, just as you said, and I'm very honored to hear you've said it, that you know it would, was your dream to get someone like me to appear on your show. Well, in the early days of my career, my dream was always to work for Parker Brothers, the makers of the great games, Monopoly, Clue, Sorry, Risk, you know. And um, uh, after several stepping stone companies in New York City, I became director of the game division at Ideal Toy, which back in the 1970s was the third biggest toy and game company in America. But it was a crazy place to work for. It was chaotically run. And one day, thanks to uh, a mutual friend, uh, I got a phone call from Bill Dorman, who was head of R&D at, at uh, Parker Brothers, and who connects to 13 Dead and Drive, by the way, many years later. And uh, I interviewed with Parker and received the job as director of new product research and thought I had died and gone to heaven. Oh, I bet. I bet. <laughs> yeah, so I spent 11 years at Parker Brothers before corporate takeovers ruined that company. And then uh, after five years in my own R&D business, which I had already always aspired to, uh, three other veterans in the industry approached me and said, we have this idea for a specialty game company but we need you to be the manager of it and the president because we don't know how to run a game business and you do. So I joined and 26 years later, when he moves games, I am happy to say is one of the uh, highest regarded and uh, most consistent of specialty game companies. Uh, it's run by the management team that, uh, I hired and nurtured years ago, and I must say that since I retired from active management, all they've done is double the size of the company. So <laughs> that's all. That's all they've done. <laughs> yeah. And they believe just as I do in the 
in the, the merits and the staying power of classic games. And, uh, you know, every year Winnie Moves does introduce new and novel games to the market. But really what consumers look to are, is uh, an element of familiarity. And I think the reason, if I can digress this for a second, I think the reason why games that have stood the test of time are always desired and um, are such uh, easy sells to the next generation is because they are based on qualities and principles that we all feel as instinctively um, apply to real life. And we can all see the, the, the parallels. Um, and if they work for one generation, they work for the next as long as the subject matter does not obsolete itself. And, you know, what you're dealing with, a word game like Scrabble, that's forever. Um, a real estate game like Monopoly, which is, you know, uh, based on reality but not tied to reality. Uh, it, it requires so much in the way of human interaction and negotiating skill that that is always as fresh as the players who sit down around it. So that type of game has always been what Winnie Moves has strived to uh, publish. And I'm very happy that uh, I was able to play a role in, um, you know, bringing that about. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you had uh, just recently I bought from your uh, from Winning Moves the Game of States, mm -hmm. which was uh, one. I believe it was the first game that was STEM certified. Yeah. Um, and so I like to play it with my son. Uh, it's a great pickup and deliver game. Yeah. But. But making him read, so every time we pick a, you know, draw the card, or where is it going, you know, we read the card all the way through with the state and the bird and motto and all that. It's just, it's a fantastic redo of, a, of another classic game. Well, you know, Adam, you would be surprised at how many people come into the game industry and don't appreciate the value of details like that. You know, uh, because, and I find this out too now with my grandchildren, I always make them read the cards and they just absorb, I'm sure your son does as well, they just absorb these, if you will, the, the collectible aspect of games. For example, knowing all the state birds or the key products, uh, or for that matter, just knowing the states and their capitals. And where they are. And where they are. And I mean, and I bet you, if you sat down, the average adult, and say a seven-year-old, who has played Game of the States and has learned the capitals, the average adult would be stumped by about a half a dozen of them, maybe more. <laughs> I always tell my wife, she didn't believe me, that I could, if you put down the United, a map of the United States, I can label every state in the capitals. And I drew a blank on a few capitals, but I knew where all 50 states were, no question. But I can label them all. I know where they all are. Um, but it's because I had flashcards and stuff growing up as a kid. And now, now my son will know it because we play game of States and uh, 10 days in the USA. Uh, so you're, you know, he's getting his geography lesson while playing a board game. Yeah. And, and, and entertainment is always the easiest vehicle to inculcate. Um, and by the way, I think your state probably has the re most easily, uh, forgettable capital. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's Jefferson City, right? Yeah, yeah. See, now I think, you know, most people, 
forget that if they ever learned it. And they obviously say St. Louis, or if not St. Louis, they say Kansas City, and uh, then they're stumped. Well, I think it's also one of, if not the only, state where the capital is not located on an interstate. Whoa. <laughs> there's, well, no way, there's no way to get there. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me, many years ago, my wife and I decided we wanted to visit a lot of uh, eastern Canada. And, of course, one of the cities that was not too far from the beaten path was Ottawa. And we both remember that after you got off the interstate, you were going through farm countries to get to the capital of this country. I mean, it just literally was at the, back in the 1980s. There was no really convenient way to get there. <laughs> That's what's so funny about Gem City. You, you take one of the two interstates out, and then you've got to get off and, and either go north because you went out 44 or south because you went out 70. and. Yeah. To hit Jeff City in the in the middle of the state, so <laughs> yeah, not one of the easier state capitals to get to, but the Capitol building is beautiful and huge. Yeah, well, it's got that going for it then. Good, it, it has something going for it. Yeah. So, how did you get into gaming? Well, you know, I was thinking about that this afternoon. I I, I remember that the first game that I played, I think I was about four, was. Cootie, you know, the game where you put the... Uh, <laughs> you got to put the little legs on. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. And, and uh, there was a, a retired businessman who lived not too far away from me. And his nieces... And, I, and by the way, I grew up in Cape May County, New Jersey, which is about 30 miles south of Atlantic City, which is the uh, city upon which the street names for Monopoly are based, which is separate topic but that's the neck of the woods that i knew for 18 years and the closest big city to cape may county is philadelphia which is 65 miles away i think from my home anyway this retired businessman from philadelphia um, would often have his two young nieces come down and pay a visit uh, i guess along with their mom which would be his daughter uh, or some relative anyways not his daughter, but I guess his wife's relative, whatnot. Anyway, one day they invite me over, and uh, there's this game, Cootie. And these two young girls, maybe they're like eight and six or something, they teach me the game. And I remember coming home to my mom, and I'm saying to her, I just did something really exciting. I played something called a game. That was the <laughs> first time. Then I also had two young aunts, sisters of my mother, and they introduced me when I was, say, six years old to the classics, you know, for my age level. Parcheesi, checkers. Um, they bought a number of children's games that they played with me. And the big moment in my life that, that when I really felt that I was, I knew what my future calling would be, was when I was eight and my aunts and uncles invited me to play a game called Monopoly. And I remember they, they, I stayed overnight at one of my, my aunt and uncle's house. They showed me the game the night before. I was just awed by the little houses and hotels and the money. I'd never seen anything quite so exciting before. And the next day they taught me to play. And I think I did okay. You know, I held my own against adults, which was to me a very, very fulfilling experience. And I remember that when I got back home, I twisted my mom's arm and said, you got to buy Monopoly. And, you know, she did a few days later. And then after we played Monopoly for a couple of weeks, I said, I really want Clue, the detective game. And 
So with a little bit of reluctance, she went out and got me <laughs> Clue, because it wasn't Christmas or my birthday. And then I forget what the third game was I wanted, but she did something that changed my life. She said, no. She said to me, Philip, your birthday is coming up in six weeks, and no more games until your birthday. You can be patient. Well, I couldn't be patient. So what did I do? <laughs> I invented my own game. There you go. You know? And once I invented that one, then they just kept coming. So I thank my mom a lot for uh, giving me the incentive to uh, eventually choose my life's profession. All because she said no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who would have thought? Yeah. Well, she, you know, if, if she had said yes and I kept getting games, what incentive would I have? An incentive, as I realized, you know, through my business career is what creates exceptional results. Sure. That's, you know, that's great. That's a, that's yeah. a great story. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, uh, so a business partner, coworker of mine, we started making our own games because we were playing games every day at lunch and we thought, we should make our own games and we already got this captive audience of coworkers. We'll make yeah. them our play testers. And so, yeah, that's what we've been. So, uh, we started our own little publishing company and published our first game a couple years ago. We get ready to, we got three of them that are right. They're ready to just go. So be, yeah, can't More go wrong. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so what is, oh, go ahead. Did, did you hear, or do you know of the, the legendary game inventor, Sid Saxon? Yes. Okay. Well, Sid, um, who lived in the Bronx, New York, and had this wonderfully large game collection and who was a uh, very prolific inventor, uh, all of his uh, personal papers and diaries were acquired by the Strong Museum of Play in Rochester, New York. Now, I assume you know of the Strong so it's got, you know, 400,000 playthings uh, in beautiful, you know, uh, properly conditioned storage areas uh, on display at any given moment, I guess, or, you know, 10,000 toys or games. But they also have this marvelous library, and the librarian there has been particularly taken by uh, Sid Saxon's uh, documents because Sid uh, is emblematic of, of what a game inventor is. Uh, even though he passed away some time ago. And just recently, they actually put everything up on a website. So if you go to the Strong Museum of Plays website, you can find the Sid Saxon archive. And if you're a game inventor, uh, it's really marvelous to see the thought process as exemplified by his prototypes and notes of how he went about the process of inventing games. And, and all this brings me to one pithy comment that Sid said to me uh, when I was starting out in my career. And his pithy comment was, there are no bad games. Every game serves a purpose. So. <laughs> That's awesome. No, I, Sid Saxon's a, I, I'm going to have to look it up and, and read those. Like I got his gamut of games book, which is yep. just a, a, so much fun to read because the games are very, quick, very quick to read and learn how to play. Some take, you know, have some time to take, but they're not that complicated to, to get to get started with. And what, what's, uh, so, what's so marvelous about that is all of the games that he created for this book 
are played with common playing equipment. Yep. You know, so it's not like you have to go out and buy a, a special game version to play the game whose rules appear in this book. You just gather the materials that he mentions. And I remember, and this is again another one of my fond memories, uh, I had just sold my little game company uh, during my junior year of college. And I was at the New York Toy Fair, which is the annual trade event where the industry gathers, you know, tens of thousands of people. And uh, I meet Sid Saxon. And Sid was very gracious. And he invited me and my partner to come to dinner in the Bronx. And when we got there, he was just finishing approving the galleys for a gamut of games. You know, nice. This, it wasn't published yet. It was just, there it was. Oh ready to go and he was telling me about it and uh uh one of the 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 i can just remember the twinkle in his eye as he was uh saying you know what a what a fun experience it was for him to be challenged and therefore incentivized through royalties to create these games that use common equipment yeah pen paper uh deck yeah. of cards Checkers. maybe a stick Check yeah, stack yeah. of uh, poker chips yeah, nothing, the nothing to it. Like if you're a board gamer, you've got everything you need right to play everything in gamut of games. Now some of them you may have to uh, make a makeshift game board like the Origins of World sure. War One, but you know otherwise you've got everything you need. That's so right. I I do a, a lot of reading uh, about board games and a lot of times you know that's why I get in trouble. You know, oh, you, you know, check out these games. And I'm like, oh, I might as well check out these games, you know, and I'm writing them down and then I go find them. And then my wife tries to tell me I should stop buying games. And, you know, well, of course. Yeah. yeah. So one of them that always keeps coming up was a choir. And I, I've never yeah. played a choir. And I kept thinking, you know, I want to get it. I want to get it. And it's usually 30 to 50 bucks on eBay. And I'm like, wow. Yeah, and I'm like, I just, but I, what I really want is like the old 3M edition. Yeah, you right, know? the bookcase. The yeah. bookcase edition. Right. And I was at a toy fair, and there it was on this guy, in this guy's booth. Like the 1967 3M, yeah. the bookcase edition. Right. And I'm like, oh. So I ask him, I'm like, you know, how much for this game? And so, you know, it's it's COVID times and everything. So we've got masks on, and he says $15. What? And I said, one five or five zero? And he's like, one five. I'm like, yep, okay. So. All right. Did, yeah. you, really, did you really get it for 15 I, I really got it for $15. Oh, awesome. And then, I, and then while I was there, I picked up an old, because I've been wanting a copy of Careers, but I want one of the older ones. Yeah. And yeah, he, had a co- yeah he had a copy of Careers from like, 1965 so it was like the gold cut like the gold box yeah because yeah. i want to make sure i had the eight tracks not the six that they've moved it to now yeah i know um, that's 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 sad and so i wanted to make sure i had the eight and he's like yeah you can have that for 15 as well and i'm like okay so 30 bucks i walked out of there with uh, a choir and careers and i'm like yes awesome <laughs> Well, I remember that when the 3M games came out, the biggest deterrent to owning them was their price tag because they were the first games intended to be purchased by adults and they were extremely high quality and they retailed for double the average price of a board game. 
So if you wanted to buy one of these games, either you had to be an adult who had, you know, a good income or a kid who saved up for, you know, allowance for several weeks. But <laughs> I, d I did get the original uh, uh, Acquire during my high school years, and I took it with me to college. And I remember a lot of the, and I joined a fraternity, and you know, there was a couple of guys in the fraternity, and we just loved to play Avalon Hill-style games and whatnot, and, but we were looked at askance by most of the others until <laughs> I brought out a choir. And then sometimes I would come back from my classes, and there'd be four guys all huddled around <laughs> playing until two in the morning, you know, because a choir just had such universal appeal. Yeah, I had never heard of it until a couple of years ago, and so I got my copy. I have um, I'm meeting up with some of my cousins next weekend, and I'm like, we're playing a choir. And one of my cousins was like, oh, I love that game. And my other cousin was like, I've heard of it, but I've never played it. I'm like, well, we're playing it. I got it. We're gonna play it. Well, well let me just let me explain a few things about a choir to your to your listeners because we don't have pictures here, but a, a choir is a game where you actually uh, build and merge hotel chains and the hotels are represented by square plastic pieces that have a particular uh, identity on top of them. And the identity is uh, a row and column numbers, for example, A1 or C2 or whatnot. That's the only place that particular piece can be placed. And if you can link up pieces, you build chains and they get bigger and the value of your hotel chains go up, et cetera, et cetera. But and this is what I find very interesting. The board, of course, is an abstract grid. It has a plastic superimposed grid over a clear grid on top of a printed board that shows the identity of all of the, whatever it is, 96 spaces or whatnot. Maybe it's more than that. However, the first edition that the 3M company published, and Sid showed me this, was a bigger board, and in the background was a map of the world. So when you put down a hotel, you were actually putting it, let's say, in Venezuela or Panama oh, or man. Mexico or Texas or whatnot. You know, that was the original idea was to use the world as the backdrop. And I think what they found by the time they revised the game was that players didn't need that type of, of uh, connection to reality. They just love the play of the game and this... Uh, the suspense created by being taken over by a larger chain, uh, the, the realization that decisions you made early in the game had enormous consequences toward the end, you know, stock that you bought or didn't buy. So those were the qualities that drove that game's popularity. Yeah, I, I can't wait to play it. I, I really can't. It's been through a bunch of different public... I don't think it's currently in publication right now. Yeah, well, what happened was... It was the 3M company, which had this marvelous idea to create the first line ever of adult games, realized after about, you know, maybe about a decade that they could never build the business to rival, let's say, uh, Scotch Tape or, or whatever their stationary division was producing. You know, it was, so in other words, the game, the game uh, category for them was too small to warrant attention. So they sold the business, the game business, to Avalon Hill, the maker of the classic board games. And Avalon Hill uh, republished many of the game in the bookshelf format. But Avalon Hill was also a small sort of family-owned business that eventually 
petered out in terms of sales growth. And who stepped up to buy Avalon Hill but Hasbro, the owner of my old company, Parker Brothers, and Milton Bradley. So Hasbro saw Avalon Hill as a good acquisition to build on their game business. They, in turn, also acquired Wizards of the Coast, you know, Magic the Gathering. Mm -hmm. And so they decided Avalon Hill belonged with Wizards. And between Milton Bradley and Wizards, I think a few editions of Acquire were published, but I don't think any of them are on the market today. Yeah, I don't think so either. And that's why I was just so excited to see the, the edition I have. It fits on my bookcase with the, well, I have a bunch of the uh, the wooden ones that Milton Bradley, Parker Brothers put out. Oh my gosh, it's got to be 15 years ago. The wooden ones where they slide out. I've got yeah. the Monopoly and Clue and yeah, Risk. Through, yeah, that's that was through Target. That was an exclusive for Target. And Target really did well with those. Yeah, so I've got that set, and then I, so then I've got those with my 3M collection, which is growing. I've got Feudal, Breakthrough. I'm uh, trying to track down Regatta right now. <laughs> and I just, I'm like, boat racing game? Heck yeah, why not? Because like I said, I grew up in Indiana, so I've actually been down to the Madison Regatta. Oh my gosh, it has to be, it had to be over 20 years ago when we were down there, and they had the Budweiser, the Miss Budweiser boat, the big, the big, oh, yeah, yeah. oh my goodness. So it was, I mean, the Madison Regatta was an interesting, I'm glad I saw it once. It was really cool. Uh, but yeah, so I'm like, Ooh, I want to, this, this old 1960s game about boat racing. Well, and even more remote, but perhaps more uh, desired collectible. If you can ever get your hands on it, is a Parker brother game called Yacht Race. So the little setup before I tell you about this game is that a lot of the uh, Parker family were yachtsmen. And the Parker Brothers was located in Salem, Massachusetts, which is on the Atlantic Ocean. So yachts and yacht racing were fairly commonplace along the North Shore of Boston. A game inventor comes in today, and this is years before I get to Parker. I don't, I'm not even sure I know the guy's name. And he presents this gigantic game board for a, a yacht racing game, which he calls Yacht Race. And it's very realistic. I mean, it's got cards that tell you which way the wind's going so you can tack or yaw. Uh, there's obstacles. It's a magnificent ocean course that you are uh, racing through. The game is probably the biggest box that Parker published in modern time. Of course, it didn't sell <laughs> because outside of, you know, the North Shore of Massachusetts and a few other areas who, who you know, in the uh, <laughs> among children have any familiarity with yacht racing. But it's such, it's such a magnificent game that if you or any of your listeners ever hear of it and know of a copy, grab it if you can. I'm sure it's going to be a... Uh, fabulous collectible in years to come if not now no i've never heard of it but yeah so this is like i, I tell my wife this is the, this is where i get in trouble talking to people about these obscure hard to find games i'm like it almost becomes like a mission now i gotta go yeah, find yeah. this board so i wrote it down yacht race by parker brothers i'll have to see i'll see if i can find it yeah especially if you can get it cheap like you did acquire oh my gosh i i still I still think that guy, he, like I said, I was like one five 
or five zero. Because if he said fifty bucks, I was still good with it. You're still good with it, right? I was like fifty bucks, and he's like, no, no, fifteen. I'm like, ah. When that game first appeared, I believe its retail price was seven dollars. In an era when really uh, substantial board games cost three fifty, so. Seven dollars back then is at least seventy today. So you got a choir for a dollar fifty in you know in the era when it first came out. So for a song and a dance. What is what a steal? <laughs> yeah. So if I came to your place right now in uh, over, no, I forgot where you live, man. In, in Gloucester, Massachusetts. Yeah. Right in Massachusetts. So if I came to your place in Massachusetts, what what game are you playing? Well, the last game I played this actually just a couple of days ago with my two grandsons was Scrabble. And uh, one reason why I like to play Scrabble with them is because not only does it help them develop vocabulary and we allow them to use the Scrabble dictionary so they can learn words, uh, especially more remote words. But Scrabble is equally as instructive in math as it is in uh, verbiage. And yep. My uh, my older grandson, who's pretty good in both English and math, figured out at a very early age that it didn't matter how many tiles you played; all that mattered is you get a lot of points. Yeah, you know. And so that 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 economy is a very sound principle to learn to learn early in life. But uh, on other occasions, when they're here, we will we'll play Risk. You know, maybe Monopoly. Uh, they they like Parcheesi uh, quite a bit, and. Um, I have, you know, as you can imagine, uh, in my game room in the basement, uh, whatever classic that they might want to play, typically I have it. Which, by the way, <laughs> and, and it includes 13 Dead End Drive. And I remember oh. that that uh, my older grandson was delighted to be one of the playtesters of 13 Dead End Drive when we were considering the game for reproduction. Because, as, as you can imagine, even though the game 13 Dead End Drive had been published previously... It didn't mean that the people at Winnie Moves who would be responsible for bringing it back either remembered it or knew what made it great. So we made sure everybody who would touch that game played it and understood where the fun was. Oh, man, the fun is killing the people and then bluffing and bluffing. It's all about the bluff. Like, oh, I don't have the staircase. I can't kill this guy. But yet I've got three staircases, but that's my chef. I don't want to kill the chef, you know? Right, right, right. Oh, man. Marvelous. Now, the same guy who hired me at Parker, Bill Dorman, and I wish Bill was still with us, but Bill was a really delightful, uh, delightful guy who really loved being in the game business, having suffered in the advertising field for a decade or so. Bill went on to Milton Bradley, and I remember when 13 Dead End Drive was first introduced at Toy Fair, whatever year it was. I guess it was, what, it's sometime in the mm, early mid, 90s. It's mid- like 96, maybe? Yeah, thereabouts. Okay. Uh, and Bill, Bill, of course, who knew me from our relationship at Parker Brothers, I came through the Milton Bradley showroom at Toy Fair, and Bill took me aside and said, I am so proud to have gotten Milton Bradley back into the board game business, meaning with a new board game. Uh, Because, you know, in that particular area, there was a lot of distraction with adult social games like Trivial Pursuit. Uh, 
card-based uh, adventure games like Magic the Gathering, you know, even variants of Dungeons and Dragons. And there was not a lot of attention being paid to classic family board games. But Bill found 13 Dead and Dry, and he was particularly proud of it. And I, I never thought that I'd have the opportunity through Winning Moves to, uh, to get a hold of it and publish it. Oh, yeah. It's so great. Um, I, like I said, I have it. It's 1993, by the way. I looked it up here real quick. Um, yeah, that makes sense. I have the original, uh, and my I remember playing it with my brother and sister. We we played games like crazy growing up. Uh, Clue, Monopoly, Thirteen Dead and Drive, and then the Play-Doh games. Remember those, like oh, Splat and and uh, yeah, Grape well, Escape. Well, grape Escape. Yeah, I knew the inventors <laughs> of the Grape Escape. As a matter of fact, the great the Grape Escape uh, was invented in Chicago by Gordon Barlow who was the principal inventor of Mousetrap. Oh, yeah. You can sort of see the, see the connection, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That, that makes total sense now. Yeah. Oh, man. So my son, who's he's nine now, mm-hmm. uh, he's been playing games since he was three. Cool. Um, you know, yeah, it's not, he doesn't have much of a choice, you know, with me as a dad. Yeah, but that's and then, great. <laughs> and then my, my daughter, she's getting ready to turn three. We've already got her hooked on playing with playing cards and rolling dice and everything. So she's set to go. We were at my parents' house, so his grandparents' house, and we found Grape Escape sitting yeah. in, the, in the old game closet. And I'm like, oh, buddy, check this game out. So we, we get out. My mom, I don't even know. She had, like, Play-Doh that hadn't been opened. So we, like, because obviously very, the Play-Doh for my night. Yeah, it's yeah. very important. You got a fresh plate open. <laughs> yeah, because the ones that were in there were just rocks. So yeah. we threw those out, and uh, we we played Grape Escape, and it just like blew his mind. It's like this is great, and I'm like, yeah, Grape Escape is awesome. I think one of the things that Grape Escape points out, uh, if you have a uh, a knack for being a game inventor, is that you should always break the rules. In other words, coming up with another grape escape or another 13 dead and dry, even if it's slightly better, is not really what's going to turn on the world or for that matter, you know, the uh, game buying public. But if you come up with something that just doesn't have a precedent, but still works as a competitive game with scoring and, and turns and, you know, rules that don't cause confusion, you've got something. Yeah. Well, and then, so there's a new game, I believe it just left Kickstarter, but it's called Necromolds Monster Battles, and mm-hmm. it's a game where you make, you only get a certain amount of Play-Doh, and that's like your, you know, your currency or your value, yeah. and you have to make your monsters out of this Play-Doh with these molds, and then like if you make like a small one or a big one, but you can only make so many because you'll run out of Play-Doh, and I'm like taking the idea of grape escape and expanding on it. So you're making your guys, but you only have a finite amount of Play-Doh and you're trying to make this army. And I'm like, that's a, that's a really cool concept because limited resources is something that we all have to deal with in real life. You only have so much money. You only have so much room in your house, so much gas in your tank. And you just have to learn how to mother these things. And then if you do, you also figure out over time how you make them grow. So that's yeah. that's a fundamental concept that works in game form. <laughs> so I want to step back a second. You said you play Monopoly with your grandsons. Mm-hmm. What what version of Monopoly are you playing? 
Uh, you mean, uh, well, first of all, it's it's the classic version, but you mean when was this particular version? Oh, no, like I didn't know if you were playing like the the ver- like the Mega, the oh, mega yeah. edition. Yeah, there, there's really only two editions that uh, my grandkids care to play, although they have played several of the others uh, once or twice. I mean, they just like the classic because everybody sure. knows the classic. And if you know the classic, you can sit down with anybody literally around the world and play that game with them. They also like Mega because they just like a lot of stuff. <laughs> you know, when Mega's got more money and it's got the skyscrapers. It's got, the, it's got, it's, the bigger board, you got, yeah. you got more everything in that game. That that game, my brother, I, I wanted it. My brother found it for me, got it for me for my birthday years ago. And it was just hard to find somebody who wants to sit down and play it because it's like, oh, no, it's Manavi, but it's bigger. And they're like, oh. Yeah, but you have to realize <laughs> that because of the speed die, it actually takes less time. So that yeah. was that was the you know, and if I'll just uh, digress this for a quick sec, I'll tell you how Mega came about. While I was at Parker Brothers, every so often an inventor would come in with a bigger version of Monopoly, and uh, as clever as they were, the major objection to uh, publish these games was they just simply took too long. It was already. Monopoly was already a long enough game, and the thought that you would, you know, offer something else that might take 50% longer or 100% longer just didn't fly with the marketing department. So now I'm at Winning Moves, and it's, you know, whatever year it is, the early 2000s, and um, I get a phone call from the president of Hasbro Games, my an old acquaintance, Dave Wilson. Hasbro Games was all of the game companies combined that Parker, that Hasbro had acquired, Parker Brothers, Milton Bradley in particular, you know, Koner Brothers, Lakeside, every game that they'd ever acquired as part of Hasbro Games. And Dave has received a phone call from one of his salesmen that he misinterprets, which was, this is, again, this is how sometimes how the best ideas come about. Dave says to me, Phil, do you think you at Winning Moves could make a bigger version of Monopoly? And I say to Dave, Dave, I've looked at a lot of bigger versions when I was at Parker. The problem was they took too long to play. They weren't marketable. And Dave says, do you think you can fix that problem? And I said, well, give me some time. Maybe I can. What I didn't realize was what Dave was asking me to do was to make a blow-up version of Monopoly. <laughs> In other words, one where a game board was like three and a half feet square and the houses were maybe an inch tall. <laughs> I thought he wanted a game that had more stuff in it. So, so one morning, about a week later, I'm taking a shower. And this is, a, this is absolutely true. I'm taking a shower and I see in my mind the speed die, which is the key to playing Monopoly faster. And and I remember coming out of the shower and saying, you know, I think this could work. So, you know, quickly I put together, you know, the prototype of the game, most importantly, the speed die. And what do we find in testing? Instead of playing regular Monopoly for an hour or an hour and a half, you can play Mega Monopoly and get all that money and all those buildings in like 45 minutes. So <laughs> when I present this to Dave, Needless to say, his jaw dropped. <laughs> I bet. For two reasons. Number one, it wasn't what he expected. Number two, <laughs> it was actually better than he expected. That's awesome. 
he's expecting yeah. to come in with like this huge board and these yeah, big right. pieces and you come in with a whole new concept yeah, <laughs> yeah fortunately it all worked oh. out yeah. oh man so do you play a lot of the newer games that are out there like the the carcassonne and ticket oh, to ride well, and all that yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and i tell you one of my probably one of my best experiences uh in recent years was helping to establish the three winning moves companies in Europe. Now, there is a winning moves company in England, one in France, one in Germany, and a lot of satellite companies, all run by really nice, energetic, you know, young people um, who hail from these countries. And as you probably know, Germany is the heart of the uh, gamers world when it comes to board games. And yeah. and the same inventors who invented Carcassonne um, also invented a lot of the games that Winnie Moves International published. And I, whenever I would go over, would have this really great experience of sitting down and playing these games because they always wanted my input and my opinion. Uh, so I did get to know a lot of the inventors of this ilk. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, Carcassonne in particular and uh, games of that nature are what drive the European board game market. Yeah. So how do you pronounce Klaus Teuber's game? Settlers of? Catan. Yep. <laughs> I already knew the answer, but I still wanted to, to make sure. Yeah, I, yeah, Catan, absolutely. Now, now talk about a phenomenon. Talk about oh. something that just, you know, no one could have... Uh, comprehend it in advance how big that would become and, and i'll give you i'll give your listeners just an example of just how quickly this game mushroom the largest consumer game fair in europe takes place um, in essen germany every october game companies actually rent space in this massive complex of exhibition buildings that has game playing tables and chairs uh, and Consumers pay an entrance fee, fairly stiff fee. Usually, you know, uh, I see families coming in there and they run to the different manufacturers where they have the privilege of taking off the shelf any game on display, putting it down on a table, sitting around it and playing it. Well, Cork, I mean, Settlers of Catan began that way. It was, you know, uh, simply uh, one of many games that were available to play. And, you know, I noticed, say, in year two, that every single table of, you know, by the manufacturer was not occupied by all of the games that were being offered. It was only Settlers of Catan, game after game after game. Well, when I was last there, which goes back several years now, an entire auditorium room was filled with tables set up to play Settlers of Catan in competition. Yeah, they have the the uh, the world championships now. That's right. Yeah, I've competed in the uh, lower, the entry level, and I made it to the finals and got beat uh, here That's locally. Good. That's yeah. pretty good. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, couldn't roll a five or whatever I needed to save my life. But yeah, uh, yeah. yeah it was, but I love the game. It's what got me back into gaming, uh, kind of broke me out of the, the whole Parker Brothers, Milton Bradley games, kind of opened my eyes to the whole, this whole industry. And yeah. um, 
you know, and it's what got me gaming with my coworkers. Um, that's how we started. And I, I'm like, I work with a bunch of engineers. I'm like, I cannot be the only person that knows how to play Catan in this building. And I uh, found a couple more. And then we started off just like four or five of us. And it was always like a rush because the first four people that got in there got to play. Everybody else had to sit back and watch because we only had yeah. one copy and not enough people to play two. And then we had a trophy that was a traveling trophy. And so if you had the trophy, you had to defend it. You had to go in there and, and play and defend your, your, your trophy. And then it just ballooned from there. And, you know, like I said, I'll always be grateful to Catan for getting me back into gaming, getting me to, you know, help my company uh, come together, break down some communication barriers. Nice. And, you know, it's it's been a great game for me and my friends and you know we've got i've got all the expansions and variants and silly little santa that goes around and drops off presents and i mean it's it's crazy well that's also something i I find very um captivating about games is that when a game like Catan creates a new world he just loves populating it expanding it you know and there are so few games that actually can um withstand that type of growth that you know katana is one and doesn't seem to have any end in sight no it doesn't so when you were working at winning moves did you guys play games at lunch or was that like your time to not play games like do you want to play games right now i gotta eat my sandwich yeah well there were two times to play games uh the the most significant time was when it was scheduled for play testing, which could happen any time during the day based on everybody's schedule. You know, usually Laura Pecci, who runs the uh, uh, new product innovations for Winnie Moose, which means, you know, new games and innovations, would uh, figure out who in the company were the right people to play a new game that had come in from an inventor. She would find a time convenient to all. She would schedule however much time it took, 45 minutes an hour, to play the game and critique it. But if you just really wanted to have fun, then you played at lunch. And we had, we had one small conference room at Winnie Moves right next to the kitchen. So it was very convenient to grab your food, sit down, and just roll the dice and get going. That, yeah, that's exactly that. We, uh, we, we took over the conference room right by the kitchen at my office. Why like, not? Yeah. And everybody knew, like, you know, there's a board game going on in there. There might yeah. be two. Heck, there might be three, depending on how many people are there and what games are being played. But, man, it was, yeah, the conference room right by the uh, the kitchen. And I'll, t- I'll tell you one other Parker Brothers story. So Ideal Toy, the company I worked for in New York just before coming to Massachusetts and joining Parker Brothers, uh, really didn't have a game culture. The company had started as a doll firm, then got into toys, you know, Evil Knievel and things like that. But... When I got to Parker Brothers, it was all games. And what did I discover within my first week? There was always a lunchtime game going on in the art department. And people from the art department and product development, maybe even a marketing person or two, would be playing this game. They would rush to finish their lunch so they could play it. And it was a card-based game. And I think I can tell you, without being censored, that the name of the game that they played was called Oh Shit. <laughs> because when you got stuck with cards, you couldn't play. That's exactly what yeah. you said. 
So, oh shit, which was never published. I, I, I know we often said, why don't we just change the name and, and put it out, you know, as a, as a deck of, or two decks of cards. But uh, the feeling was without the name, it just really didn't have the appeal. So, <laughs> it, would just, it, it would just lose something. <laughs> but I mean, that was the national pastime at Parker Brothers for years. That's awesome. Yeah, you wrote a whole book. The game makers on the history of Parker Brothers. Yeah, yeah, and I get I get queried on that a lot by historians. Yeah, as a, yeah. As a matter of fact, I, I uh, uh, in particular the Strong Museum, uh, you know, their historians will contact me for every now and then because game scholars go to research in their library and they usually have some question about Parker Brothers history. And I, I had the really good fortune of meeting the uh, son-in-law of George Parker, Robert Barton, who ran the firm from the acquisition of Monopoly until 1968, and then his son, Randolph, who ran it until sometime in the 1980s. And Randy, as he goes, had uh, all of George Parker's, the founder of the company, all of his archive, all of his pictures, his diaries, his notes. Wow. And I drew upon that when I wrote The Game Makers. I was fortunate. That is That would have been something yeah. else. No, the book is great. I, I love that one. I I don't read fast, but uh, I couldn't put that one down. That was that was such a good book. And just Thank some you. of the stories. Like, I, I think the funniest thing that, not maybe not the funniest, but one of the things I didn't even realize was that Nerf, yeah, came from Parker Brothers. Oh, yeah. It just started off as like, like an indoor volleyball game. Instead, now oh, we don't need the net. We just need this this ball made of this weird material, and we just knock it around. And, right, and, right, it, sold, yeah. and it sold like crazy. <laughs> as I say, at that time, the president of Parker Brothers was Eddie Parker, who was the grandson of one of the original Parker Brothers, who was named Edward. And uh, this game comes in. Bill Dorman is the guy who brings it in. And uh, uh, the R&D people are playing it in a uh, room not far from the cafeteria. And they're all sitting on the floor cross-legged because it was an indoor volleyball game. And the rules were you sat on the floor, you had to cross your legs, and you batted this big foam ball, which I guess was about maybe four or five inches in diameter. You just batted it back and forth. So Eddie comes through, and he sees the ball, (laughs) and Eddie by the way, was if his two claim the fames were he solved the problem with making risk playable because risk had been invented in Europe. And by the time it got to the States, the big problem was it, it took too long. Eddie put in the rule to uh, make each set of cards that you turned in yield more and more armies. It may seem intuitive to us now, but that's fundamental to risk. But Eddie came up with that. Anyways, so he's going past the playtest room. He sees this, the R&D guy struggling with their cross legs on the floor, which means, by the way, half the population can't play because they can't sit on the floor cross legs. Right. <laughs> and, and Eddie looks at it, and he points to the ball, and he just simply says, that's a game. And the team said, what do you mean? He says, just get rid of everything else. Yeah. It's just throwing it around and not causing damage. I mean, that's a product. Now, the trade was extremely skeptical. And they, they couldn't comprehend that consumers would pay whatever the price was, a buck or two bucks back then, for a cut foam ball that weighed nothing. <laughs> you know, and uh, I, and uh, the, great, the great story, which I think I tell in my book, is back then 
one of the largest accounts, retail accounts in America was Woolworth stores. There must have been 1,500 Woolworth stores coast to coast. So, you know, if you wanted to justify a television advertising campaign for a new game, you had to have distribution at Woolworths and the massive orders that they would give you, otherwise you couldn't afford it. So naturally the Parker Brothers sales team presents the game to Woolworths and the buyer just rolls his eyes and said, come on, you know, you, you're making, you know, you're going to make a fool out of me asking me to take in, you know, a lightweight cut foam ball with, with, with no rules and no game board or whatnot, because he was still thinking, you know, Parker Brothers games only. So Parker Brothers did something that was very gutsy. They said to him, I'll tell you what we'll do. Uh, don't reject Nerf quite yet. We will run a test commercial in a city of your choice. You just tell us, you know, where you've got a bunch of stores. Buy quantities put to put in your stores in that one area. We think it's really going to sell. Uh, how much would you want? So I think the guy hemmed and hauled, and he probably bought 5,000 pieces or something. And then Parker Brothers put the commercial on the air that showed the kids having so much fun batting it back and forth in the house. It showed it bouncing off a lamp slate shade so mom could see that it wouldn't cause damage. And it, it uh, absorbed the natural energy that kids had to throw stuff at each other. So they ran the test. Two days later, the Woolworths buyer called and said to the sales guy at Parker, how many can you make and when can you get them to me? <laughs> That's a good problem to have right yeah. there. Oh, man. So was it orange originally? That yes, the, uh... yeah, it was an orange. And the thing was, you could never sell that original Nerf ball today because of safety uh, requirements. You see... Uh, the original cut foam balls came out before there was something uh, called the bite pull test. The bite pull test uh, is intended to not market products that an under three-year-old can clamp down on his jaw and rip away a piece of because if he or she ingests it, he could choke. Choke, sure. yeah. So all the cut foam products that Parker Brothers made during the first three or four years were suddenly outlawed. But the solution was a new molding technology called molded foam, where you would actually mold an interior of a ball with a cellular structure, but you would put a hard skin around it. And that became the Nerf football or the Nerf basketball. You know? Interesting. So that, that's how Nerf kept alive and and then eventually became you know the world of projectiles that we yeah <laughs> all the all the nerf darts yeah there's always a handful of those in my backyard because our neighbors next door have like nerf wars and i would go out there and mow the yard i'm like picking up all these nerf darts and throwing them back over into their yard I'm like, yeah, well, yeah. that's cool uh, yeah so if you play a game with colors what color do you prefer to play as well, from the earliest age, I always liked green. And green, probably because green represents money. Money. <laughs> and, I, and I always thought that, geez, it would be great to have a lot of money. But another reason I like green is because the, uh, in most games, the first two colors to go are red and blue. And I don't want to get in an argument over 
getting one of those. I just want to get into the game. <laughs> so, so green's fine with me. Oh, yeah. My, my couple of my friends, that's their favorite color. And it's like, good. Mine's red. So okay, you know. yours is red. Okay. Yeah. Mine's red. So, uh, I, I could talk to you like forever and it's, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to take up your whole night. Um, but yeah, so tortured cardboard going around, writing the book with the with the game gnome. So many great stories. Like the story of Clue is very sad for the creator, but sure. such a great game that's still around, still being changed and attempted to change and then pull back and you know i like how every time they put out a new version it's like this is the new version and then like a year later it's like well this is the classic version and i'm like yeah because yeah, yeah. you can't mess with the classic yeah and the nice thing about the classic version is aside from the identity of a couple of the characters it's fundamentally the same game as the inventor came up with yeah and uh have you ever played the game kill dr lucky no so tell me about Kill Dr. Lucky. So Kill Dr. Lucky is a game where the designer, whose name is escaping me right now, um, he decided that the that every all the good games start after something happened. Uh, James Ernest, that's his name. James Ernest from Cheap Ass Games. Oh, yeah, okay. He decided that Clue is a great game, about finding out who who did the murder but what if you had a game where you're trying to commit the murder mm-hmm. and so the whole point of kill dr lucky is you're trying to get in the room with dr lucky and kill him and everybody else is trying to keep dr lucky alive so that they can kill him <laughs> yeah that's not a bad concept i no, have it's seen, it's hilarious i i have seen games um in fact, some that were published as far back as the 1930s, where you actually commit uh, murders in real time without the other players realizing at first that you did it. And that's a pretty good uh, concept for a game, too, is uh, through, the, through the play of cards at the right moment, it can be discovered that you, Adam, have just been killed. <laughs> okay. But you then, the other players, then have to reconstruct, well, who could possibly have done it? When did it happen and where did it happen? That's awesome. No, I I, I, I love Clue. Um, it's been one that I've been playing at my new company. Um, some of the ideas behind these newer versions of Clue have been cracking me up. The what happened in Vegas version where you're trying to find your, you've lost your buddy and you're trying to figure out where you left him the night before and what was he doing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of fun additions of Clue. I've got the uh, Secrets and Spies, which the one with like the phone texting, but I, um, I have not played that one yet. It's still on my list. But the Master Detective, the winning moves does. Mm-hmm. The bigger board, the more rooms, the more weapons, the more characters. Oh, that's a fun one. Yeah, well, that one has a little story behind it, too, because... Um... When I was running the R&D department at Parker Brothers, the marketing department felt that Clue could uh, withstand having a bigger version. But again, just like with Monopoly, their concern was, well, just don't make it play longer, which, you know, seems counterintuitive because you have more suspects, you have more rooms, much bigger board, more weapons. So there was a really good 
guy who worked for me named Jack McMahon, who had been with the company a long time. And Jack's claim to fame was really he was an artist, but he also loved playing games. And eventually Parker shifted him from art into game design. And I remember I turned to Jack and I said, Jack, you're the right guy in the group to do this. Here's your assignment. Um, take your time. You, know, you have two weeks or whatnot to come back with some ideas. I said, you only have one restriction. You cannot make this game take any longer to play than regular Clue. And uh, I wasn't hopeful, quite frankly. I didn't know how you do it. But Jack figured it out. Jack put spaces on the board where you, in effect, double up on your turn and more things happen quicker. That was the solution that was that was uh, needed. Yep. The, the intrigue cards. Yeah. Right. A little, little question mark on the board. Yeah. So... If you played a one-hour game, what is your go-to one-hour game? Oh, there are so many. Uh, actually, I think I'd like to sit down and play a choir with you and a couple of us if I have an hour, <laughs> truthfully. you know. Um, uh, Clue takes a lot less time, so I can't really include Clue. And Monopoly, if we don't play with the speed die, that could take a lot longer. So, no, I think it would probably be... Um, you know, the one I just mentioned, Acquire. I think we'd have a great deal of fun playing Acquire. I would love to come out to Massachusetts and play Acquire with you. <laughs> well, well, we'll keep the light on for you, Adam. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. And then your 30-minute game. Uh, for 30 minutes, I think that Clue is a really good 30-minute yeah. game. I really do. Yeah. You move that one right along. Yep. I love Clue. It works really well in my office. Uh, none of the guys at my new office are as, I don't want to say hardcore, um, but they're not as into the the gaming industry as, you know, my past employment. So Clue is such a, a very classic game that I was surprised that I had to teach it to a couple people in my office who didn't know how to play Clue. Yeah, that's amazing. But, but once they figure, you know, but it's such a great game with the deductive reasoning. And then also like, you know, the, the looking around and, you know, did, did Adam just guess the lead pipe knowing it wasn't the lead pipe because he's got the lead pipe right. or is it the lead pipe and nobody had, you know, keeping track of all that. And you see all these people making all these scribbling down all these notes. And I, I've always, I just, I love clue. It's such a great game. Well, you and, know, I, I've known a couple of players who actually have the ability to read the motive behind the, the uh, suggestion that other players give and they figure out, ah, Adam asked for the lead pipe, but he's got it, and here's why, you know. <laughs> Don't let me play with those guys. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. lose enough as it is. Like I always say, like I play, I can play any game you put down in front of me. I will not win it, but I will, I will play it because I love to play. But I will not win it. So, uh, last question I'm going to ask you, and then uh, any other last thoughts. But uh, are you active on Kickstarter? Personally, no, uh, but a lot of the people who come through winning moves are. And the reason I'm not is because this is, I'm, I, I'm, I'm in a different phase in my career and I spend so much time researching and writing now that I don't really get involved in it. And then one other thing that, that ties into this is uh, I, was, I, I became a really avid game collector during the time that I was writing the game makers because I wanted to own the games that I talked about yeah. Or, or photographed for the book. I just didn't want to gather them from elsewhere. So I got sort of hooked on the idea of getting really nice 
pristine editions of a lot of the classic Parker games from the 30s and the 40s, which was a heyday for the company. And eventually I built up a really nice collection. And then one day, and I think it was around 2010, 2011, uh, friends of mine from the Strong Museum said, uh, we would really like to get a hold of your personal archive, <laughs> like we did with Saxon, your notes, your prototypes and whatnot. And uh, we really would like to get a hold of your Parker game collection because there's nothing like it. And not that it was massive. You don't have to have a massive collection if you're focused on just one company, especially a company that, you know, kept its product line to reasonable length. So I made a deal back in 2012, and now all of these games that meant so much to me uh, are, on, are in the strong, and I know that they'll be taken care of forever. Uh, that ended my interest in collecting or getting involved in new game ventures, uh, and I turned a page in, in my career at that point. Yeah, well, so, yeah, it's it's funny you brought up trying to find the old ones. Uh, so, I read, like I said, I read a lot. One of the books you read was called Family Games, The 100 Best. Yeah. Uh, it was 100 essays that was edited by James Lauder. It was a nice, and- nice book. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. It was one of my, so my son, it was his bedtime story. Every night I'd go, we'd, we'd go to bed, I'd read him a chapter about a game, and then we'd decide if we want to, you know, find it. And we came across Millborn. Yes. Oh my gosh. I have never in my life played a game that many times that fast. Yeah. I found a copy literally covered in dust at my game, my local game shop. And I was like, I bought it. I felt like, come on guys. I, I literally dusted off this copy. You should give me a discount, but they didn't. But anyway. Yeah. Well, as the name, as the name implies, Mealborn was a French product. Parker mm-hmm. brothers licensed it. I think 1963 and the year that they published it, they did put it on TV. It outsold monopoly, which was a first. Yeah, and so I'm trying to find a copy of Touring, the the, the game by Parker Brothers Absolutely. that preceded it. Yeah. But I want to try to find like the oldest copy I can because the mileage cards were so small. Yes, so and, modest. Yeah, like five miles. Oh my gosh, you know. I, I remember that that uh, Touring was published by an independent company. And in the 1920s, thereabouts, Parker Brothers acquired it. And Parker Brothers made a living for the next 40-some years simply by updating Millborn, I mean, touring, to include uh, bigger and bigger miles. So, for example, <laughs> City, it, it, it's so classic because if you get a version from the 1930s, speeding back then was 35 miles an hour. <laughs> You, you had to get up to a version in the 60s or 70s to get up to 70. You know? Yeah, and that's, that's why I want to find, like, until Winning Moves has a, uh, a version. We did. Uh, we I don't did. have, I haven't yeah. bought it yet. Um, we, we did. We published Millborn and Touring. Um, Millborn was, the, the maker in France ultimately sold it to a Canadian company called Asmodee. Mm-hmm. So Asmodee publishes a nice version of Millborn. Uh, that Mealborn is so popular that touring uh, really paled by comparison when we tried to bring it back. I still love the version that we have at many from Winning Moves, but yeah. even better is I like the versions from the 50s and the 40s with the quaint miles on them. Well, and my, my, so 
there's a version of Milborn that's only available in Europe where they combined it with Mario Kart. Oh. And I'm like, how do I get a copy of that? And I've been trying to find a copy of that um, for a reasonable price. But uh, I got some friends in, that I've interviewed before on the show that live in England. And they're like, oh, you got to come over here. And I'm like, yeah, I'll just hop a plane and fly to London real quick. Like, it's no big deal. Yeah. But I'm like, when I'm over there, though, if I ever make it over, I, I just want to get that. Kind of, so my son really likes Mario Kart, the game, the video yeah. game and all that. And like I said, we absolutely adore Millborn. And so when I saw that there's this combination where it actually has like a board and you have the little characters and you're driving around, you know, a thousand miles. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. But, yeah, I, I cannot begin to tell you I, I bought the game and I track all my gaming and on my phone or on an app because I use my time wisely. And that game went from not even knowing what it was to third on my list in a matter of months. Wow. Just because of how much fun it is, how easy it is and how quick you can play it. And it is just a blast. Did you ever play the version uh, grass? No. Is it grass as in smoking? <laughs> yeah, came out in the eighties. A guy made a version of Millborn, but it gets basically rethemed uh, as you're you're selling you're selling marijuana and you're trying to make a you know the money <laughs> thousand joints or whatever. Hey, tell me what country is Go Kart Millborn published in? I think it's in France. Okay. Yeah, but uh, yeah, so I did find another one. Uh, for his birthday or Christmas. Yeah, Christmas. That's what's coming up for him next. That was a Cars 2 theme of Millborn. So I got that. I, I nicked that off eBay. But I'll tell you, Millborn, I want to find touring. Um, I want to, like I said, I want to find like the oldest copy that I can find for a reasonable price. You know, I don't want, I don't want to spend a whole lot of money. Well, you know, sometimes... Uh, you can, if you're a game collector, you don't have to get every game ever published. You can put, you can just simply find collections of a title that over time have been updated. So you can probably get, I'm just going to guess, six or eight different versions of touring that will show you the history of basically the United States from its inception to the present. And that's very cool. That is. That is cool. I didn't think about it that way. Maybe I'll uh, I'll start picking them up. Yeah. But it's funny because like with Millborn, like I said, it was a game I'd never heard of, and I bought it from the local game shop. And then uh, I see it now everywhere I go. I see it. It's it all these like consignment shops like five bucks. Yeah. And so I was at I was at a, a bookstore, used bookstore with my sister, and there it was five bucks. I'm like, hey, you need to buy this, and she's like, okay. That's and then I, yeah. yeah, and then I was at uh, Goodwill and it was there for like three dollars, and I'm like, yep, you know. Well, you think and about just... it, umpteen million Millborns have been published since 1963, so they can't <laughs> be too high priced. There's just too many of them out there. I know. I paid fifteen dollars for an unopened one, and I'm like, come on, guys, I had to, I had to blow off the the price tag to see how much you want. <laughs> you wanted this thing's been sitting over collecting dust. Uh, it's uh, the Dujardin version so yeah, it's in the tin sure. yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's in yeah, the tin yeah. and everything so cool that's uh oh my gosh but phil i i, I want to thank you for being on my show I, I like i said i could talk to you all night um the, thank you adam yeah. what 
you said you're writing. Are you writing another book? Are you working on another book right now? Yeah, I have two of them, but they're they're they are game based, but they're actual history. And I hope maybe the next time that uh, we get together, I can tell you specifically. Oh man, tell me it's like the history of Clue because that is like still. <laughs> I mean, I, just that poor guy. Yeah. How he took the he took the lump sum payout and kind of got hosed in the end. But then just the different versions of Clue, it's like, you know, I'm not a big IP guy, you know, like you slap, you know, Simpsons on Clue and you're just, you know, it's whatever. Yeah, right. But you start, but then like the Harry Potter one where you like, you shift the walls and so you can't get into certain rooms at certain times. And I'm like, that's awesome. And then you've got like, then like you've got the secrets or the uh, discover the secrets where you've got the intrigue cards, but you got clock cards that kill somebody else. And it's like just little ways of changing the game. Like that's, what's fun to me. And with monopoly and then the sore losers and the speed game, the, the longest game ever, like yeah, it's yeah, all yeah. those different versions. That's like, that's where I keep going back to is like the classics with a twist, you know? Yeah. Those are great. I can't wait. Whatever your next book is. Uh, I'll definitely, I'll definitely read it. Um, yeah. Well, I'll try to give you some insights as soon as uh, I'm permitted to do so. Excellent. The only one that I haven't finished yet is Monopoly, the world's most famous game and how it got that way. Right. That is the history of the game and its effect on the culture from the beginning, you know, with the Landlord's game up until the, the 1990s or something like that. Yeah. Maybe I, I can't 2000s. wait. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And for anybody who hasn't read the Monopoly Companion, it's fantastic. Oh, tortured, ca- tortured Cardboard is awesome. Game Makers. Um, I did not realize the tragic history of the Parker family. Yeah, it was, that was. Yeah, yeah, that was something else. I yeah. mean, just I look forward to whatever, whatever your next board game theme book is. I cannot wait to read it. Well, I can't wait to be able to tell you about it, Adam. Really. <laughs> Again, I want to thank you for coming on my show. This has meant so much to me um, to be able to talk to you and just about the history of games and your involvement with them and the stories that you have. I mean, we didn't even scratch the surface. So anybody listening, get these books and there's so much more out there about board game history that, I mean, you could have a whole podcast just on board game history. Well, for sure. For sure. And well, it's, it's part of our culture and it, it deserves rightful recognition. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, I think it's great that a lot of them are becoming it's getting more recognition now. It's getting yeah. award, you know, different awards that matter and they're being viewed as, as art and as Correct. media that can be, you know, consumed and can be, you know, up there with movies and paintings and, and CDs or, you know, so Agreed. I'm glad it's getting there, but man, uh, this has been a great, time and i look forward to uh, keeping in touch with you going forward so you do that adam i appreciate it i will and for anybody that wants to reach out to me it's facebook.com slash eat lunch and board game or email me at eat lunch and board game at gmail.com and remember board games build bridges absolutely
Stay in tune with all things sports around Indiana and the nation with the Crash Course Podcast. Each week, we tackle the big storylines from the world of the Colts, Pacers, and the Indiana College scene, while also keeping a pulse on the nation. We record live weekly at twitch.tv slash 3cmedia, and can be found on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever podcasts can be heard, you can catch the Crash Course Podcast. When you're gaming, why not be comfy? Go over to supportplayer.org. Click on the cards, pieces, and dice to get some merch. These t-shirts are some of the most comfortable I have ever worn. That's supportplayer.org, and there's a link on eatlunchandboardgame.com.